Purple Heart. Nice left. Those weapons of mass destruction got to be somewhere. By 2014, the war in Afghanistan will be over. Nice left. Well, I, you know, general is not necessarily a general. Uh, no, nope. no weapons over there. He may be a communist. Nice left. All right. Hello, everyone. From New York to Los Angeles, coast to coast in the United States, this is the latest edition of Eyes Left. I'm your co-host, Spencer Rapone, joined here with... Uh, Mike Preisner. Hey, everyone. It's a special episode because it's wartime. Um, If you're too young to remember what a buildup for a war looks like, this is it. Uh, Not so coincidentally, the target this time has the largest oil reserves in the world. That's right. Venezuela, a country that has absolutely uh, poses no threat to us or to the United States. Yet uh, here we are on the verge of a U.S. military intervention. And I think, Spencer, the the real reason that we're there's a war danger here is because the people that have announced that they're in power in Venezuela really can't take power without uh, some kind of U.S. military uh, assistance. And so, you know, really happy that we have this podcast to talk about it, because that's, you know, one of the real reasons we started this show, Spencer, is uh, not just the day-to-day stuff, but on the eve of an actual new war starting, we can be able to be there to uh, explain it to people, uh, explain the real deal and the reasons why you have the right and even the duty uh, to say no to any orders participating in it. Yeah. um, In case you didn't notice it, uh, the other day, John Bolton was spotted with a clipboard uh, that had written on it uh, f- something in the order of 5,000 troops to Colombia, uh, some type of staging operation, uh, perhaps. But uh, at the end of the day, yeah, uh, what we're witnessing right now uh, in Venezuela is a quintessential example of what U.S. imperialism has looked like uh, in Latin America writ large for the past uh, 40 to 50 years. And to see it happening in real time is quite frustrating, but not necessarily surprising because uh, if we recall, it was only uh, as, as recently as 2002 uh, in Venezuela specifically that the United States sought out to interfere in its internal political affairs. Yeah, that's right. And it's, you know, it's really important to, to watch what's happening now because it is, like you said, the quintessential process, right? I mean, automatically, right out the gate, all the mainstream media outlets begin running all of this bullshit propaganda. It's the same. It's identical to what we saw in the lead up to the Iraq war, where from the New York Times and Washington, all the papers of record, all the cable news stations, even many alternative media like Vice and things like that. They all start running these absolutely outrageous stories that are just absolutely absolutely false. I mean, it's just coup propaganda, legitimizing guy. Even the Washington Post just gave this guy who we'll talk about, Juan Guaido, who declared himself president and was unknown to virtually all Venezuelans uh, prior to his announcement. They gave him like an op-ed written by him about why the coup is justified. So just kind of really obscene to see it. So I would just tell people off the bat, do not trust the stories that you're seeing in the media. A lot of times, even the headline is directly contradicted by the text, you know, like headlines like people breaking into zoos to eat zoo animals because they're starving or all the main opposition parties are banned from the elections. And then you read the article and find that that's absolutely not at all what it says. The U.S. media deliberately does not show the mass demonstrations in support of the government, which, uh, you know, the day that Waido announced himself president, they showed this big opposition demonstration. There is a Chavista demonstration, the same exact size going on at the same time. There are mass pro-government demonstrations all over the country, many times, you know, rivaling the size of the opposition demonstrations, but the U.S. media deliberately does not show them. They only show you the opposition demonstrations. Um, So, of course, be very skeptical of the media, and so that's why I'm glad we're having this conversation, Spencer, so we can uh, debunk some of that stuff and kind of give the real story here. Yeah, regarding uh, debunking a lot of the... uh the misconceptions, uh, the false information uh, we're seeing around here. You've done a, a couple different media rounds in the past week or so, Mike. So if, if you want, uh, we're going to get into some of that. But in order to have a more in-depth analysis that's outside of mere uh, debunking things, Mike and I will provide you with uh, links and uh, places to go for the different rounds that Mike has done over the, the past week. Yeah, and in case listeners don't know, um, I went to Venezuela and. 2017, which was the last time there was a U.S.-backed coup attempt in the country, 
where there is uh, three months of like really intense, violent protests that like really shut the country down. That was the first time we had Trump talking about U.S. military intervention in the country. Um, it was a really kind of desperate situation. And so I went uh, with my partner, Abby Martin, for our show Empire Files um, and did a lot of on the ground investigations there. And so you can go to the Empire Files YouTube and see many of the on the ground reports I did. Um, and also I'll provide a link to another thing. I, there's an episode of HBO's Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, where he does just a total propaganda blitz, like every single bullshit talking point about Venezuela and put them all in like a whole 30 minute episode. So I go through point by point and debunk each of them. And so that's, I think, a good primer for people who are kind of trying to get, you know, get get answers to all of the things that you see that are really difficult things. Right. I mean, it seems the, the claims are pretty major. But when you see what's behind them, the reality begins to appear. But, you know, it's, it's interesting that Spencer, that you started out by mentioning that you know, we saw John Bolton flash this notepad of five thousand troops to Colombia. Of course, yeah. likely you know bordering Venezuela. That's where any U.S. military intervention would be staged. It is a very different situation now for Venezuela because not only do you have Trump, this fascist who's probably not scared to launch any war, um, not just him, but two other countries, uh, Brazil and Colombia, that just had elections last year, who also elected far-right fascist presidents who are completely in line with the U.S. and its uh, imperialist aims in the region. And so that kind of uh, shift, you know, really made, you know, the possibility of uh, intervention by the U.S. or through proxies, you know, Brazilian or Colombian proxy forces, uh, very, very real. But the fact that John Bolton is here, I mean, we've talked about him in the past, how crazy it is that he's even in the administration, this Iraq war criminal, that here he is again, making the case for the United States to, it's already intervening, but of course, to take it to another level, it's intervening in major ways with sanctions, embargoes, uh, you know, its whole orchestration of this coup attempt and everything. But let's just take a step back and look at who the fuck this is. It's John Bolton, who's already out in the media openly saying that this is going to be great for American oil companies. And he's already spoken with ExxonMobil and Shell about how we're going to, how their mutual interests are going to work out in the country and how they can work together uh, to literally take over Venezuela's oil company. I mean, it's, it's obscene. Yeah, um, and not only uh, uh, Bolton, it goes even further uh, back than that. Um, the point man uh, who who Trump uh, has appointed in this uh, Venezuela situation is actually Elliot Abrams, mm. who uh, was a major figure during the, the Reagan presidency and participated in a number of foreign policy decisions that resulted in human rights violations in Central America. Uh, he also, by the way, was convicted of lying to Congress uh, during the Iran-Contra investigation. So not only are we going back uh, to the neocons of the Bush administration, but even during the Reagan era, we have figures that are involved uh, in this process. And the, the, the Elliot Abrams thing is like almost, more, it's more crazy than John Bolton because Elliot Abrams yeah. is the one who during the dirty wars in Latin America in the 80s, you know, the wars against communism, right? Which is really just massacring right. indigenous people and farmers and union members in countries throughout Latin America. In his defense of the death squads in Guatemala, which were, I mean, these people were worse than ISIS. I mean, these people were yeah. crucifying people, decapitating people and children, like doing extremely good, like mass. They'd like go into a village, they'd capture everyone, they'd rape every single woman and girl as young as like four years old and then behead them all and like hang their bodies from trees and then torture all the men, crucify them, all types of gruesome shit like that. That's like worse than like ISIS stuff, but that's who the US was backing and it's because of this guy, Elliot Abrams, who is arguing, yes, it, it doesn't matter if they do bad things, it's more important that America achieves its aims uh, in the region. This is the guy that's in charge of the Venezuela operation. And not only that, he was backing this guy, uh, uh, Rios Mont, who is the, the dictator of Guatemala during this time. And Mont was found guilty in an international court of genocide, guilty of genocide. And so the guy that was responsible for Mont committing a genocide is now going to be saving Venezuela, right, from a dictator and going to be bringing human rights uh, to Venezuela. I mean, it's just the most transparently disgusting thing I've seen in, in, since the Iraq war, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, Abrams is especially a frustrating uh, figure to discuss. I mean, he's this guy, he's a senior fellow uh, for Middle Eastern Studies on the Council of Foreign Relations and, you know, think tank, but he also teaches foreign policy at Georgetown, which is, you know, uh, it's a notorious uh, institution of harboring uh, neocons uh, of some stripe. Um, but yeah, the, the fact that this guy uh, who should have been tried for the the various war crimes 
uh, uh, in the 80s during the U.S.'s uh, involvement in Latin America, back in, you know, a seat of power as a special envoy to Venezuela, it's just, it's just completely uh, insulting by any moral standard. But what's also uh, interesting is, um, I mean, you could rest assured uh, that many of the events uh, of which uh, Abrams was associated with during the 80s probably had something to do with uh, Latin American uh, dictators of some sort that were trained at the uh, School of the Americas at Fort Benning, Georgia, mm-hmm. or WINSEC, uh, as it's known now. So we discussed that in one of our past episodes. So just keep that in mind, too, when we're looking at all of these varying uh, destabilization efforts uh, in Latin America by the United States. Yeah, and have you seen this guy, Elliot Abrams? I mean, he's like, his face like embodies his who he is as a person more than any person I've ever seen. Like, he just looks like the most evil, like, sneering dude alive. He he looks like a an absolute like a ghoul. I yeah, mean, I mean it is astonishing. It's like a cartoon. It's like an evil guy cartoon, yeah. but in real life. Like uh, he was even interviewed at on some show like in the the eighties or something, and confronted about uh, the war crimes that that he oversaw and, and the actual genocide he oversaw of in, an entire indigenous population. And just like he's just like laughing, and just, his laugh is just like so. This guy's pretty awful. And and not to mention that. You know, so here you are under the command of this guy who's guilty of genocide, not just war crimes, genocide. John Bolton, the Iraq war criminal who got 5,000 soldiers killed for absolutely no reason because he thought it'd be good for U.S. oil companies, just like he does now in Venezuela. Of course, Trump. Um, But you know who your secretary of defense is now, now that uh, Mattis is out? It's this guy, uh, Shanahan, who is the fucking CEO of Boeing, defense contractor. Yeah, this is the this is the great chain of command we have right now. Now the the Patrick Shanahan situation again is just like I mean it couldn't be any more obvious what the true aim and interests of the United States military industrial complex really are. I mean you have two of the most notorious neocons of the last thirty years. You have this guy whose entire uh, career was made at Boeing, uh, being some variation uh, of an arms uh, manufacturer or affiliated therein. And now all of these people were together and we're witnessing after uh, two Latin American countries see uh, far-right political figures come to power, now we're seeing one of the few remaining uh, hubs of something that could be seen as a mass uh, leftist political movements, whatever critiques you, you want to levy, uh, you're seeing that threatened uh, by all of these confluence of forces presently. Yeah, and I mean, that's that's one of the important things that that we got to touch on is all of the rhetoric, you know, Pompeo and Bolton, they're all saying, we are taking this act. You know, they just put an oil embargo on Venezuela. So the fact that the U.S. is sanctioning them relentlessly, I mean, trying to destroy the yeah. country, the oil embargo they just placed on the country. I mean, the U.S. is the number one importer of Venezuelan oil. So it's just meant to, to completely crush crush the country. It's all under the auspices are saying, we're doing all this and we're supporting this real president, Guaido, to restore democracy in Venezuela. And any U.S. military intervention, which they are very clear about saying is not off the table, uh, and we know that they're weighing, Um, It's to restore democracy. The thing is, Venezuela has a democracy. President Maduro was democratically elected. You cannot argue that the elections in Venezuela are not free and fair. There was just an election on May 20th. Opposition candidates ran in the election. Maduro won the election. And here we are, months later, saying there needs to be a legitimate, uh, not only an election in Venezuela, but we're just going to declare that this other guy who didn't run for president... And in fact, there was a poll done and 81% of Venezuelans had no idea who Juan Guaido was until he declared himself president. Um, I mean, if you are a part of any military action against Venezuela, it will not be to restore democracy. It will be to subvert democracy. And what I witnessed myself with a very rich and open, vibrant, functioning democracy. Yeah, I was going to, you know, on the subject of military action too, I saw a, a video that you had retweeted where Abby had met with one of the um, high-ranking officers of the Venezuelan uh, military. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and he was kind of uh, explaining things to the effect of, you know, the Venezuelan people, the Venezuelan military, do not see um, the United States as any sort of threat. But of course, they'd be willing uh, to defend themselves. But I, but I just thought, like, it, it was so different for me mm-hmm. seeing someone of, of, you know, that high of a rank mm-hmm. uh, in a military structure to speak 
in a way that actually seemed to actually connect with uh, a wider, you know, mass political vision uh, linked with uh, the masses, linked with the people. And again, I'm not not to idealize or fetishize anything, but it, but it's so distinctly different from a lot of the the huffing and puffing and the chest beating you see from American generals mm-hmm. and, and high-ranking uh, American officers uh, in the military here. Uh, so it's just like when you see the, I guess, the, the articulation of a political vision shared by so many different parts of Venezuelan society, and then you compare that to the, you know, just the vacuous claim of, you know, implementing uh, and restoring democracy that the U.S. has used in every every subversion uh, they've taken part in, whether it was in Iran uh, in the 50s when they overthrew Mossadegh mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, any of the Latin American coups d'etat uh, in the 70s and 80s. Uh, when It just does not hold uh, any water whatsoever when you actually look at the the historical record and you engage with what, the majority of Venezuelans of all walks of life are actually saying. The interview you're referring to is with actually the head of the armed forces, General Pedrino. So he's the highest ranking right. officer in the Venezuelan military. And so I, I was uh, there for that interview. And it was incredible to be able to meet. I met so many Venezuelan soldiers like of all ranks from him down to, down to privates. And it was just such a cool experience because it's like, you know, the U.S., could go to war with Venezuela. So I just was thinking of like, what if, just how, just a difference it would make if soldiers would like meet the soldiers that they might fight one day, you know, and kind of uh, yeah. realize that they're they're just like you and things like that. So it was very cool of me to meet just right. like rank and file soldiers. But meeting with General Pedrino, I mean, it was interesting because I'm in the office, you know, the waiting room office of the highest ranking general of the Venezuelan military. And it's filled with books and posters and stuff. And I realized that all of the books and it's all books by Fidel Castro and Che Guevara, like in his office. Yeah. I mean, these are like leftists, like so- self-described socialist revolutionaries at all ranks of the military. Mm-hmm. And in that interview you referenced, Spencer, he's saying, he's like, we're not a threat. He's like, we are an anti-imperialist military. That's how the soldiers, right. soldiers in the Venezuelan army, they're like, we are anti-imperialist, right? We will never go anywhere and hurt anyone else, but we will just defend our homeland. Like that is their mentality. Yeah. So it is true that the vast majority of the military is pro-Maduro, is pro-socialist, pro-PSUV. Um, that since Chavez came from the military, was a hero in the military, led an insurrection of, of socialist and, and progressive officers in the military. And so, you know, he's Chavismo is held in high regard in the military. But even those in the military who don't like Maduro and support opposition candidates in the military, the, the Pedrino doesn't say we have automatic loyalty to the socialist party or to Maduro. The military is we have a duty to the Constitution, the Bolivarian Constitution, which is democratically created when Chavez was elected. It's like a mass uh, uh, project where people all over the country could write what they wanted to be in the Constitution, make amendments, vote on on local levels and larger levels. Right, and yeah. It was democratically by the whole country. They have a Constitution that was actually created through a democratic process. And the military is bound to uphold that Constitution. And this coup... This new president, as much as they want to say it's constitutional, it absolutely has no basis whatsoever in the Venezuelan constitution. So you can be sure that the Venezuelan military is not going to be part of this this coup thing. There have been factions that have tried to do things, but of right-wing officers and stuff, but they've pretty much uh, all been routed out over the years after many, many coup attempts. Yeah, and and I mean, regarding... uh the various right-wing factions. That form. I mean, in any military environment, inev- inevitably, there's going to be a certain type of person who's attracted to being able to uh, partake uh, in violent acts on other people uh, with impunity. But like you said, a few and far between. And that's certainly not unique to Vene- Venezuela. Uh, but yeah, it's, you know, if you put your put yourself in the shoes of a Venezuelan rank-and-file soldier, it's something I've been thinking about and how the principles uh, you are taught uh, you know, are inherently of a defensive nature. And I compare that with, with like myself and you and, and others, you know, we've, ta- we've talked to over the years and how so many join uh, the American uh, military, the United States military, with the impression that they'd be protecting their loved ones and, you know, in their hometown and so on and so forth. And then, then you realize when you're actually deployed to Iraq, Afghanistan, or what have you, how you're this, you know, this big bully and, there's not a single person in any of those places who's threatening the Constitution of the United States, uh, even though that's your oath. And, and not that the United States Constitution is worth defending, but you know, when you're in that mindset, when you realize that's all a farce, 
and then comparing that to this country, which again, you, you know, it, it, every place on this earth has its own issues it's dealing with. There are no utopias, but guess what? When you're in the seat of empire, and when a and when an anti-imperialist uh, state, nation state, anti-imperialist country is standing up against the greatest purveyor of global imperialist violence, that's really not the time probably to be taking pot shots. <laughs> of course, you know, ruthless critique of everything existing. But, but I think, uh, you know, you've done a good job of this, uh, Mike, Boots Riley especially, mm-hmm. and kind of just yep. outlining uh, the stakes currently. You know, with all that in mind, I think it gives, you know, at least for me uh, and, and others who are familiar with, you know, you know, listening to show military experience, if you just put yourself into the the role of an average Venezuelan soldier or just an average Ven- uh, Venezuelan citizen, mm-hmm. I mean, you you start to realize uh, that the the everyday politics of the United States have such a psychological uh, psychologically limiting effect on understanding world affairs and condition you to act in such a way that even if you are trying to remain neutral uh, in a situation such as this and be like, well, you know, I don't want to really speak on it. It's like, well, by virtue of that, you kind of end up siding with what the State Department uh, narrative yeah. is going to end up uh, being uh, here. So, you know, and, and that's something, uh, you know, watching that interview uh, with the head of the Venezuelan armed forces and just, you know, any type of theoretical framework that espouses an anti-imperialist line for me, I, I think kind of, Bridges the gap in terms of you don't need. I guess the point here is like you don't need to be a scholar on Venezuela. You know, I'm you know I'm in graduate school right now studying history. I don't study Venezuelan history. Mm. I don't know much about it compared to other regions in the world. But through studying other historical periods, other historical epochs, knowing a thing or two about imperialism. Uh, you know, you could connect the dots pretty easily there. Yeah, and you know, it's it's actually been pretty annoying because even. Even those, uh, you know, public politicians and and media figures who have taken a stand against the coup, which is great, it always has to be prefaced with this, um, you know, Maduro is bad and he's terrible and he's yeah. doing horrible things and he's running the country into the ground, but U.S. intervention is wrong. I mean, that is just uh, outrageous for for so many reasons. Number one, because you don't actually know the people who are saying this, they can't back it up. They actually don't know what they're talking about. They're literally just regurgitating right. the talking yeah. points that they're seeing on mass media, which we know yeah. lies to us, especially when it comes to who is a bad guy in the world and and who is a good guy. It, it can't be trusted. And even if you do have, you do know what you're talking about. And if you do have legitimate critiques of Maduro, this really is not the time. The U.S. is about to attack the country and overthrow the fucking government. I mean, this is a very real thing. Many millions of lives are going to be thrown in peril uh, in Venezuela. They absolutely already have been by, by the U.S. attacks since, since Chavez uh, was democratically elected 20 years ago. But th- this is like in a red alert situation. This is extremely serious. The only thing we need to be doing is condemning what our government is doing and standing up to any all the U.S. meddling that's happening now and any escalation of the U.S. meddling. But the, the thing that annoys me most about that is it's like, it's kind of a like a chauvinist and a racist position to take that Maduro's horrible, he shouldn't be in power, but uh, the US shouldn't intervene. Maduro is part of a mass movement. He was elevated to that position by that mass movement. And if Maduro went away, that move, mass movement would still exist. The opposition does not, when they say they want Maduro gone, and when the US government says they want Maduro gone, they're not just talking about Maduro. They're not just talking about Maduro and his cabinet. They're talking about the Chavista movement as a whole, which is the largest social movement in the country. It has no parallel. Yes, the opposition has numbers. Yes, the opposition has politicians. They are a social force in the country, but they're fractured, they're divided, and they are not nothing comparable to the Chavismo movement, which is the most largest and most well-organized political movement in the country. That's what democracy is. And that this is why the opposition is working with the United States, working with the CIA, asking for U.S. military support, asking for sanctions. Juan Guaido, this new president, he's now going to Germany, the EU, the United States, and asking for more sanctions on his country to drive his country deeper into the ground, to crash the economy even more. I mean, that's what you have to understand about these people. And so, you know, we have to remember that all you're going to be hearing is these like opposition Venezuelan voices. But when I was there, everywhere you went were people that loved Chavez and see the legacy of Chavez 
in the, the Socialist Party. That that's in power now, and they voted for Maduro. You know, over six million people voted for Maduro to be president just a few months ago in May, and that's that's who's who we have to look to. We, it's not we're we're not in Venezuela and decide like, well, maybe Maduro shouldn't be president. They decided we have to respect their process uh, and their decision. And so I did want to say one other thing about the opposition is that there are factions of the opposition, right? Of course, many people have legitimate criticisms and legitimate problems with. Of management and with the president and things like that. But there is a there is a moderate sector of the opposition that opposes Maduro, but they believe in dialogue with the government, which they're doing. They believe in their democratic process. They acknowledge that there is free and fair elections in the country. And if they lose the battle of democracy, they just have to keep fighting in the battle of democracy. But then there's the more extreme sectors of the opposition. And that's who we're talking about. And that's who we're talking about putting in power. And the extreme sectors of the opposition have given up on elections. They boycotted the last presidential election with help of the United States. And when one of their candidates ran and registered to run against Maduro, they immediately banned him from the party, from the opposition party, because he was ruining their plan of boycotting the election and call Maduro a dictator because they knew that they were going to lose. They what they do is they go carry out gruesome acts of violence, like lynching people for being just for being Maduro supporters, setting them on fire, stabbing them to death. I mean, so many of the deaths were from like opposition torture and assassinations and things like that. If I might interject, yeah. uh, Mike, w- what was one of the most it, could you contextualize one of the most glaring examples of someone being uh, set ablaze? Sure. I mean, I, I just want to say that I this was one of the most scared I've ever been when we went and covered an opposition protest. I mean, we're in body armor, Kevlar. It was just like I was uh, on on patrol in Iraq again. But I, when we got on the ground there, I was fucking terrified because they were targeting journalists who were considered to be pro-government journalists. And multiple times we'd get surrounded and people would be like, who are you with? What media organization? We had to just lie and say, oh, we're just Western journalists. And then they would let us go. But um, you know, one of our colleagues was shot in the back while out there reporting. Another uh, pro-government journalist was doused in gasoline and almost set on fire, but he escaped. But that did happen uh, to a man named Orlando Figueroa, who, uh, you know, the, the Chavistas are, um, there's a Afro-Venezuelans, there's a large uh, Afro-Venezuelan population, predominantly pro-government. Uh, it's just like the indigenous communities, the mestizo communities. Um, it's more like the darker skinned Venezuelans are usually pro-government. And so you get targeted if you're Afro-Venezuelan, they assume that you support the government. So this guy, Orlando Figueroa, was just walking by an opposition demonstration. This is in 2017. And the opposition saw him. And they started yelling, get the black guy, show him what we do to Chavez supporters. And they stabbed him and they doused him in gasoline and set him on fire. The entire thing is on video. And while he's on fire, they're like beating him and he died. He died in the hospital. He was interviewed about the horrific attack uh, right before he died. But that is just and and there is about 19 documented people who uh, died from burns from fire. And so some of them were opposition people who blew themselves up when they're about to launch a bomb at someone. But many of them were people targeted just for being Chavez supporters who were uh, had Molotov cocktails thrown at him in, until they died. I mean, that's that's the character of the opposition we're talking about, Spencer. Yeah, and and most of that stuff, actually, you don't really need to dig that deep to find. I mean, a simple Google search uh, for a number of those uh, incidents uh, in major publications uh, you could find. But yeah, I mean, I, I suppose, you know, in the final analysis, if you consider democracy to be an important aspect of any a socialist movement, of any mass political movement, then again, it's quite clear what's going on in Venezuela. I mean, I don't think there's any better descriptor of the opposition currently trying to overthrow the uh, democratically elected president right now. I don't think there's any uh, better descriptor than anti-democratic. I I think there's obviously a lot of fascistic tendencies there, uh, far-right nationalism, but at, at its core, it is an anti-democratic political force that is uh, utilizing the power uh, and the force of the U.S. empire and its beneficiary, beneficiaries in order to prop itself up for its own uh, material and political gain. Again, when you put it that way, it, it's quite clear to me uh, that uh, Juan uh, Guaido is nothing short uh, of an imperialist stooge uh, working at the behest of the United States. I mean, the fact that this guy wasn't even recognized by, you said, by what, Mike, like 81% <laughs> yeah. of the... Uh, so you got that going on there. Just declare, randomly declares... I, I, it's just, there's just something... I was going to say absurd, but it's almost... 
I, you know, I'm hesitant to use this term, but something like even like postmodern about just like <laughs> declaring yourself, yeah. you know, uh, the actual president. And then a few days later, you get an op-ed in, you know, the New York Times, which again, this is the paper. And then you're recognized by all yeah, these countries. Yeah, you're too. recognized by, well, it's interesting, of course. So, um, you know, someone made a, a joke. It almost looked like, you know, the old like Eastern Bloc type thing in terms mm-hmm. of the countries that recognize Maduro versus uh, the opposition. But yeah, again, in the simplest of terms, this is a question, uh, whatever socialist tendency you have, you know, whatever theoretical conflicts you might have with other leftists, at the end of the day, this is a question of democracy versus anti-democracy. And whatever caveat you want to give, those are the fault lines uh, right now with this political situation. And you have to make a choice. Yeah, and, and it's a class struggle, Spencer. And it's it's a class struggle that's yeah. being uh, expressed through the elections and through this. So the opposition, I mean, Juan Guaido already put out what his first order of business is as president. You know what it is? Privatizing the oil of the country. First order of business. Yeah. And they're going to eliminate all the social programs that lifted millions, of, that benefited so many millions of people that took Venezuela from what it was pre-Chavez, where there was like 30% extreme poverty to what it is now. Really huge, massive social gains. The biggest of any in Latin America. They want to they reverse all that stuff. It's the private interests, the corporations, of course, and Maduro. So like where you see these big opposition demonstrations, they happen in two cities, the two upper-class affluent cities. That's where the opposition has a strong presence. The entire rest of the country is, is like pro-government. The entire cities and those, those towns come out for the governments. It's just so clear when you look at who the political forces are. The PSUV is definitely the favorite of poor and working-class people in Venezuela. The opposition party, the MUD coalition, is the party of the capitalists that have been losing power uh, since Chavez came in. It's this interesting question of like how you have a socialist revolution, right? Because they didn't have a socialist revolution in Venezuela. They had a they won the executive branch, right? The socialist party won the executive branch, but they didn't uh, expropriate all of the capitalists. Like the big businesses still exist. There's still billionaires in Venezuela mm-hmm. that own their companies and function. They didn't go around like they did in Cuba and expropriate everything and nationalize everything. They they allow them to. It's it's socialist being in. It's like in the United States if the democratic socialists won the presidency and then we're in the executive branch and then there is the Congress was a Republican Congress and the Supreme Court was a Republican Supreme Court and, and things like that. So it wasn't, so they've been in this battle, but the Socialist Party has always thought that we need to win the battle of democracy and we need to fight these things in elections. And since Chavez was elected in 98, there have been 24 elections in Venezuela. That's a lot of elections in 20 years, far more than we times than we get to vote here in the United States. That's like more than once a year. And the Socialist Party has won 22 out of those 24 elections, the clear popular force in the country. The only two times that they lost is a referendum for the constitution in 2004. And then in 2015, when the opposition took control of the National Assembly, which is our Congress. And that's the whole basis of the legitimacy of Juan Guaido. When the national, when the opposition won the National Assembly in uh, 2015, this exposes how they don't give a shit about democracy. They actually had a democratic victory. The elections that they say are rigged and not fair. Well, they all of them are rigged except for the ones that they won in 2015. Um, so when they took a majority in the National Assembly, what they did was they stopped functioning. Just like they want U.S. sanctions to destroy the country and the oil embargo to destroy the country, they used their power in the National Assembly to not pass any laws. They passed zero laws in that since 2015, which is their entire job. And they're in contempt of court, the Supreme Court, for doing that and for like swearing in people who didn't win the election or wondering our election fraud. So the National Assembly has already been an abstentionist, sabotage type body and has been in contempt of court and kind of like rendered like not functioning. And so for them to say, we are the only legitimate government in the country and Juan Guaido as president of the National Assembly is the only legitimate president, it just kind of ignores the actual record of, of what the National Assembly is. But that's that's the thing is they've, the opposition has given up on the fact that they can win an election. They know they can't. That's why they boycotted the election against Maduro uh, in 2018. They know they can't win. And so all of the protests that they've been doing is all geared to, and all of the sabotage they've been doing, the big businesses sabotaging the economy, refusing to produce food products or producing them and smuggling them across the border or hoarding them in warehouses. All of this is designed to not so they can take power through an election, not so even so they can take power through a coup alone. The only reason they're doing these protests, this whole stunt with Wido, is to create a situation where the US has to intervene and install them in power because they know that's the only way that they can take power in the country. Yeah, I mean, the 
The road to power um, for the Bolivarian Revolution, Chavismo, has always included uh, democracy as one of its core tenets, and that's just not the case. Uh, what the opposition in any sense of the any sense of the word. It's also, you know, from a comparative analysis, it's also rich. I mean, this goes without saying that the United States lays claim to any sense of upholding democracy, especially considering the the existing president, Donald Trump. <laughs> the reason he won is because of an archaic system from the 18th century in the mm-hmm. Electoral College. I mean, he didn't even win the popular vote. So again, it it, it you know, we could point out the hypocrisies all day. They're they're well aware that they're acting uh, hypocritically. The problem is is the um, the monopoly on violence that they have uh, at their fingertips. But but I suppose you know as we get towards the end of this conversation, Mike, since you have uh, so much on the ground experience, and even you spent a lot of the past you know week and a half debunking a lot of the myths, um, rather than I guess having to confront the negative and then issue the truth of the matter. I just, if you could offer, you know, a glimpse of maybe a particular moment or a conversation you Mm -hmm. had, you know, we mentioned the head of the Venezuelan military that sticks out and kind of embodies um, why this opposition is so illegitimate, so anti-democratic and so hyper-nationalistic. If if you could, you know, just choose one moment, I suppose, from your time in Mm -hmm. Venezuela with Abby that embodies the spirit of what's at stake here. You know, what would that be? Yeah, I, that's a great question. I mean, I think the thing that, you know, when I went there, I was really worried about the country because it was like the pro- protests were the worst they'd ever been. Trump was in office. The economy was doing worse than ever because of the sanctions and all the sabotage. So I went there being like, fuck, man, this is like it for the Bolivarian revolution when I went. But then the fact that everywhere I went, any poor neighborhood I went to, any working class area I went to, we literally could stop any person on the street and have a conversation with them. And they would be like the most brilliant political analyst. They knew everything that was going on. They could talk about American imperialism, how the bourgeoisie in the country was sabotaging the economy. Like they were so politically astute and politically active, like actually organized in the day-to-day process and decision-making of the company uh, of the country. Um, but I think like the most profound of those was like, there is this young Afro-Venezuelan girl. She had to be like 16 years old, Right. Um, actually we have some clips of her on empire files that, that I'll link to, but she just gave like the most brilliant response. Like Trump's just a businessman who just wants our oil. Like, it doesn't matter if you like the government or not. Like we have to work together as Venezuelans to, to solve our problems ourselves without us interference. It's just like, you know, it was just brilliant. It was what you would expect one of the, the politicians in Venezuela to be saying, but it was just, you know, someone who is like in high school still. And it was, and it's like, that's the level that, that people are involved in. So it was just so inspiring, like as a socialist to walk through towns where all you see is like socialist iconography and heroes all over the walls and everyone's wearing socialist t-shirts and everyone's talking about socialism and you see the democracy. Like we drive around Caracas, we'd see like under an overpass, like two, this is when we were, they were gearing up for the constituent assembly also this election uh, to kind of counter the sabotage of the National Assembly. But it was a constitutional process where they elected a new government body to like make changes to the constitution and stuff. And so there's a lot of discussion and debate in the country about it. And you just see under an overpass, like 200 people just gathered under an overpass having a debate and discussion about the Constituent Assembly and who is going to run as candidates and who sh- what these candidates should demand and things like that. I mean, it was just, you saw the the activity everywhere. You saw the democracy everywhere at a real grassroots level. And so that just showed me that um, this movement is a very real thing. It's strong. It's millions and millions of people that have been involved in it since Chavez came into power and those who, who grew up under Chavez. I mean, and that's the scary thing about what's happening now is that they, the opposition wants these people to be invisible and to be voiceless. This movement of, and what's probably around, you know, 10 million or, or so Venezuelans who are like, uh, consider themselves Chavistas. That's a pretty sizable, significant social force. Um, and the only way that the opposition can take power and rule without them is by implementing fascism. It has to be like Pinochet style dictatorship. And so being able to overthrow the government is one thing. How are you going to rule a country that is predominantly Chavistas who are ready to fight to, to defend, defend their country from what they rightfully see as, as U.S. interference. It's, uh, it's, it's going to be a, you know, get, it's the, the easy part is getting Juan Guaido as, as the president of the country. Uh, the hard part is going to be maintaining it, much like with the Iraq war. Yeah. No, yeah, I, I guess I, I, I'm, I'm quite uh, enamored by the, the intellectual and political engagement you, you experience and you saw on a wide scale. Mm. 
on a mass scale in, uh, in Venezuela. And, and that's the thing. In any political situation, you know, as socialists, even if we were to experience some degree of power, whether here in the United States or abroad, you know, for another socialist revolution, you know, the struggle always carries on. Criticism doesn't stop. Debate continues on how, how you know, how you can improve the situation, mm-hmm. which, you know, uh, as you know, it is a testament to what you just, you know, told us, Mike, you witness going on. It's not like everyone's just like, okay, we're done here. And now we're mm-hmm. just going to leave it up to those in power. It's like, absolutely yep. not. You know, those in power answer to us. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what you experience. And again, whatever criticisms one might have, there can't be any, any debate or any intellectual engagement if a right-wing coup occurs and mm-hmm. the leftists that were in power are overthrown and the United States puppet takes its place. Yeah, and it's just like, if you're in a situation, if you're in the military and you see, and like, you know, when the Iraq war was starting, we knew it was happening before everyone else knew it was happening. You know, you start to get issued desert camouflage, you know, like things start to move internally and you see them happening. If you're in that position and you're seeing things happening, I mean, please reach out to us. You should not, absolutely not be a part of this. I mean, anyone who sees stuff happening, you should tell the world that that's happening. I mean, you have a duty to the lives of the Venezuelan people to be tipping them off to the fact that the U.S. is about to fuck them up. But if there is any any type of military intervention, you are justified in refusing this. This will be one of them, because if they go through with this, it's going to go down in history as something just as as heinous as the Iraq war and, and the dirty wars in Latin America. Not to mention there's a survey done, a, a wide-ranging survey in Venezuela that showed that 86% of Venezuelans oppose any U.S intervention and U.S. military intervention, 86%. And so if you were to intervene, it'd be against the wishes of really the vast majority of the country. Yeah, there is a there is an analysis that has a kernel of truth to it that in many ways, Trump uh, withdrawing from Syria, which, you know, there should be no U.S. presence there. Uh, potentially, the talks are in motion right now uh, in terms of withdrawing from Afghanistan. We've discussed the peace process with the Taliban. There's been a recent mm-hmm. article that came out in the New York Times discussing that, but... There is a possibility of a pivot occurring uh, in terms of the U.S. engagement in the Middle East and South Asia and kind of turning the page back to the uh, Latin American interventions of yesteryear and ones that are ongoing that are a little bit more um, beneath the headlines. There is a possibility that perhaps this is the new um, objective, especially for someone like uh, John Bolton, who uh, as a slimy individual might see the, the writing on the wall with the protracted conflicts the U.S. is engaged with in the Middle East. However, in recent years, particularly uh, since the Democratic primary of 2016, Venezuela has become the schedule uh, of establishment political figures with which they beat anyone espousing anything close to a socialist line. Not even explicitly. If you espouse something that's relatively social democratic, I mean... This whole question of Venezuela comes up. So it's interesting the the manufacturing of consent that has occurred to associate Venezuela uh, with a negative conception and idea in the Ameri- American public consciousness, uh, whereas the wars that the U.S. has been engaged with for a long time now are pretty much universally seen as failures and morally reprehensible. But because this new, you know, the past five years of, a, I guess, a, another f- formulation of psychological priming and manufacturing consent we could bear witness to, um, which the Democratic Party, we know, was just as guilty of propagating, particularly the Clintonite establishment camp, you know, in terms of, oh, look what's happening in Venezuela. What about Venezuela? This and that, you know, it's, it's endless. It's obnoxious. Oh, and by the way, the United States is the chief reason why uh, things are so problematic in certain respects in Venezuela over the past 15, 20 years. Uh, but nonetheless, seeing that pivot occur in real time and now seeing uh, op-eds in the New York Times mm-hmm. by the opposition themselves it is quite troubling. So, yeah, I mean, if you are in the military in, in any capacity, it goes without saying, reach out to us. We'll do what we can to help you. But given the nature of the the Trump presidency in, in this administration. If something does occur in terms of military intervention in Venezuela, I think you'd find if you resisted those uh, orders, you'd find a lot of sympathetic people waiting to hear from you. Radical. Today, your soldiers 
sailors, airmen, marines, and coast guard are better educated than before, are better informed, and understand what the war is all about. On this edition of Radical Military History, not as uh, as big of a sweeping event as some of the past things we've discussed here, but perhaps the most famous uh, historical figure, one that you probably are well aware of. Today, we're going to be discussing Jackie Robinson. Today, uh, January 31st, is his 100th birthday. Everyone knows that Jackie Robinson and his Major League Baseball career challenged the color line and brought about an entirely uh, new era in terms of the accessibility of Major League sports to marginalized communities. But what's often not talked about uh, with regards to Jackie Robinson very much is his military career. So I just wanted to bring up uh, an important event uh, that occurred while Jackie Robinson was in the United States Army. Although Jackie Robinson was a standout athlete at UCLA and a good student as well, he left shortly before his graduation during his senior year. Primarily, he left because both his mother and his soon-to-be wife were struggling financially, and in order to aid them, he decided to leave. It wasn't too long after that that he found himself drafted into the United States Army. And not long after that, he decided to pursue a commission and seek out Officer Candidate School, otherwise known as OCS. So he was drafted in 1942, like many people were during uh, World War II. Uh, And at this time, units were segregated. So he was assigned to an Army cavalry unit. And due to him, you know, being black, uh, of course, his application was delayed for several months. But Joe Lewis, the famous heavyweight boxing champion, uh, another, uh, of course, very important figure in sports history, he actually helped move uh, or get the ball rolling on Jackie Robinson's OCS application. Uh, He was helped by one Truman Gibson who was an assistant civilian aide to the Secretary of War at the time before it became uh, the Department of Defense. But eventually, the paperwork goes through. Uh, Jackie Robinson attended OCS. He graduated and was commissioned as a second lieutenant. Uh, He was assigned to a tank battalion at Fort Hood, Texas. The 761st Black Panthers is what they were known as. There have been a couple of books written on them. The main reason why I bring up Jackie Robinson is that on July 6th of 1944, he boarded an army bus alongside a fellow officer's wife. And now in the army, there had been unsegregated bus lines commission, but being that this was in the South and there were still, you know, Jim Crow laws and a lot of other social disparities, despite there being, you know, ostensibly unsegregated bus lines in the army at this time, the, the social and cultural climate of where that army uh, outpost was prevailed. And the bus driver ordered Jackie Robinson to move to the back of the bus. Now, Jackie Robinson, if you know anything about his spirit and tenacity, he refused. And the bus driver actually kind of just let it go and back down. But then by the end of the bus ride, he actually called the MPs, the military police, who took Robinson into custody. Uh, Robinson, of course challenged the investigating duty officer on grounds of racism. Interestingly enough, Robinson's commander of the 761st, Paul L. Bates, he didn't authorize the legal action and actually, in a sense, sided with Robinson. It was a far more measured, I guess, professional uh, response. It wasn't really out of a sense of radical solidarity, but nonetheless, Robinson himself credits him with having the foresight in that era to not punish him. However, the army transferred Robinson to a different unit, the 758th Battalion, and the commander there quickly acquiesced and charged Robinson with a number of offenses, these being public drunkenness, even though (laughs) Robinson was not drunk on that day. (laughs) So by the time of the court-martial, which was in August of 1944, the charges against Jackie Robinson had been reduced, and these were two counts of insubordination, Uh, During the questioning process, as I mentioned earlier with the investigating officer, Robinson was actually acquitted by an all-white panel of nine officers, believe it or not. These experiences stuck with Jackie Robinson, and he carried them with him, of course, when he would later challenge 
another institution, that being Major League Baseball. After his acquittal, uh, he kind of quietly finished up his military service because during the course of his uh, investigation, his unit deployed and he didn't have to see uh, any combat time. And uh, he received his honorable discharge in November of 1944. And uh, from there, he never looked back. So another example of how small individual acts of rebellion can be a catalyst for greater historical moments. So a few years later, in 1947, Jackie Robinson became the first uh, Major League Baseball player uh, who was a black man to start a Major League game since 1880. And that, of course, was with the Brooklyn Dodgers. Very cool story, Spencer. And it just, you know, it's there's such a rich connection of the, the black liberation movement in the United States uh, in the military. And we've, we've talked about one of those cases before and, and looking forward to talking about many of the other really rich stories in throughout the U.S. military history of black soldiers being involved in uh, rebellion and resistance in some form or another, just like Jackie Robinson and, and so many others were. And it's something that you see throughout U.S. history because there's this, it, it displays this contradiction. And of course, this big contradiction is going to create these, these acts of rebellion from time to time. And the contradiction being that you're being told to give your life away, put your life on the line for a country that treats you with extreme racism and inequality in your own country, the one that you're supposed to be fighting for. But I think in the context of our discussion about Venezuela today, things have not changed much since Jackie Robinson uh, was, in, was involved in that. I mean, here we have a president who came to power saying he's going to Latinos, he's going to lock them, their children away in cages and deport ones, even who are here on like TPS status and things like that, you know, campaigned on racism against Latinos and against African-Americans saying that the Black Lives Matter movement was burning the country down and we need to stand with our police to do whatever is necessary to put down these, these violent insurgents in our country that are tearing the country apart. Trump came into power on anti-Black and anti-Latino racism. And now here he is about to launch a racist war against Venezuela where U.S. troops, if they're involved in killing in Venezuela, will be killing Afro-Venezuelans, Venezuelans of cover predominantly, to put in power the rich, white, uh, elite Venezuelans that are working with the United States. And so we, it's important to look at these pieces of history and put it in context uh, of our situation today and to see that uh, we're not in a much different state at all compared to the, the situation Jackie Robinson did. You've been listening to Eyes Left with Spencer Rapone. And Mike Preisner. All of our content is free for everyone, but we can't do it without your help. So if you support this project, go to patreon.com slash eyes left to make it possible to continue. Be sure to follow us on social media at eyes left pod. And if you're in the military, a military family member or veteran and want to share your story, report problems and mismanagement, or need advice or assistance knowing your rights, including your right to get the hell out or refuse deployment, please write us at eyesleftpod at gmail.com. Eyes left.